the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up, I'll analyze the showdown between Texas and the Biden regime over the porous southern border. I'll reveal how the 2024 election might be an eerie replay of the 1980 election in which a failed president, Jimmy Carter, took on Ronald Reagan. And conservative activist and commentator Gavin Wax joins me. We're going to talk about the Iowa caucus and also about a forthcoming book, The Emerging Populist Majority. If you're watching on Rumble or listening on Apple, Google, or Spotify, please subscribe to my channel. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Show. this voice. The times are crazy. In a time of confusion, division, and lies, we need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. Today is the day of the Iowa caucus, so the real first out-the-gate a measure of how things are going to be shaping up this year for the 2024 election. And it's a frigid day in Iowa with heavy snowfall. I mean, the uh, temperature is something like minus 12, minus 14 degrees. So this is brutal. Uh, I don't know if it's going to have an impact on the turnout or Debbie was saying earlier this morning, well, I think a lot of older people are likely to kind of be cautious today because of the, you know, it's not that healthy to get out in this kind of weather. But on the other hand, I've seen lines of people outdoors uh, waiting for Trump. So this, uh, to be kind of manic, uh, you know, determination that we're going to show up no matter what. Pretty amazing to see. And um, and so I'm going to, I have no pr- prognostications. I don't like to sort of guess about who's going to come out first or second. I mean, I think I know who's going to come out first. It's Trump. He's been leading decisively in the polls. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see who comes in second, who comes in third, who comes in fourth. Uh, Vivek has been kind of promising a surprise that he's going to do much better than expected. Uh, I, I think that's probably probably true. And in fact, that Trump had a little salvo against Vivek, which tells me that the Trump people have noticed that Vivek is doing well. Um, now, uh, I'll have Gavin Wax on shortly. We're going to talk about the Iowa caucus in a little more detail. I want to comment on Fannie Willis. Uh, she gave a talk uh, recently. It look, looks like she's in a church. I'm really not sure where uh, this talk was, but it's got a bunch of people, almost like a choir behind her. And, uh, well, very interestingly, she seems to be confirming uh, the allegations that were made against her that she has been funneling money uh, to this man, uh, Nicholas Wade, 
who is her boyfriend. Now, she didn't address the money part of it, but she, the, her statements were to the effect of, well, uh, you know, as a black woman, you've got to realize that we black women do make mistakes. We do fall short. We do stumble. So uh, I read this to mean that the allegations are largely true, probably entirely true. And uh, and this does not get Fannie Willis off the hook in any way, because it's one thing to say uh, we need humility, we need forgiveness, we need grace. By the way, first of all, this is coming from someone who doesn't extend any grace to anyone else. She's a vicious prosecutor. She uses her power to go after her political opponents. And now she wants us to give her grace. But leaving that aside, legal issues don't come down to an issue of grace. They come down to corruption. They come down to uh, conflicts of interest. They come down to uh, that you uh, have responsibilities as a prosecutor. And you take an oath of office and you are bound by legal codes and and conventions. And so the judge is going to pay no attention. The judge has already said, I'm going to be looking into this. And in mid-February, Fannie Willis is going to have to file a response to these corruption charges. So it's going to be very interesting to see what she says, given that now she appears to uh, be admitting at least that this relationship has been going on. Well, and if the relationship has been going on, the rest of it is simply a matter of public record. Did she appoint this prosecutor? Yes. Did she go through a board of approval or tell anybody she was doing it? No. Uh, is she the one who approves all the money going to this guy? Yes. Well, if they're romantically involved, did they in fact do romantic things together, like go on cruises and go to hotel rooms? And the answer most likely is yes, yes, and yes again. So uh, something that had started out where people in the legal community in Atlanta were like, well, we've got a, there's no proof that's been given. We don't see any, any receipts in this legal filing. Well, all right, but we have now moved one step closer to the truth. So very interesting development out of Atlanta. And then I noticed that there's a battle brewing between Texas and the, and the federal government, Texas and the Biden administration. That because this may be finally our chance to secede or at least to raise the issue of secession. And we'll talk about that a little bit later this week. But the Texas National Guard has been taking active steps to block illegals. They are using riot shields to stop the big inflow in Eagle Pass, Texas. They've seized Shelby Park, also in Eagle Pass. And they basically told the Border Patrol, you are not allowed to enter here. So the Biden administration, freaking out about this, has filed an emergency petition to the Supreme Court, basically saying we have to stop Texas from protecting the citizens of Texas. Now, I know the argument they're going to make. They're going to say immigration is a federal responsibility. And whether or not Texas thinks we're following the law, it is our job to do it. Kind of like it's our job to do the defense of the country. Uh, if America is, let's say, facing a danger of nuclear attack, Texas cannot say we're going to deploy our own missiles. So this is going to be fought out at the level of the Supreme Court. But isn't it interesting that here is Texas trying ultimately to do nothing more than enforce the immigration law of the country in Texas. And our government, our federal government under Biden and the Biden regime is doing its best to thwart Texas from fulfilling not only the law, but also the will of the citizens of Texas. My name is Mark Lichtenfeld, best-selling author of Get Rich with Dividends and chief income strategist at the Oxford Club, one of the world's largest and most prominent financial firms 
where over 250,000 readers receive my insights each week. I believe we're entering the greatest oil bull market since the 1970s. That's why I'm so excited to share this special oil and gas investment with you today. I've discovered an unusual way to potentially bank massive income from the oil and gas surge 100% outside the stock market. Oil and gas royalties are a backdoor way to get paid over and over again, and you can get into a top royalty stream for just $25. This is your chance to get the income you need to truly enjoy life. Simply because you made the decision to give the Oxford Income Letter a risk-free try today. But this opportunity won't last forever. To learn more about Mark Lichtenfeld's unusual approach to generating monthly income from the oil markets, please visit oilpayday.com. That's oilpayday.com. Paid for by the Oxford Club. As Christians, we have a sacred duty to honor and respect Israel and the Jewish people as God's chosen ones. In Genesis, God promises Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. This covenant remains binding today. Israel is a chosen nation that the Lord will never abandon, but one day renew completely. I'm honored to support Voice of Judah Israel, a messianic ministry focused in the heartland of Israel. Voice of Judah Israel encourages evangelism, discipleship, and church planting in the land of Israel. Uh, It also uses humanitarian outreach to support all Israelis. So let's help. Let's fulfill our duty as Christians to bless the Jewish people. The fields are ripe for harvest in the Holy Land where our faith was born. Will you seize this moment, rise up with voice of Judah, Israel, and empower the Jewish people? Let's fulfill our duty as Christians. Bless Israel. Communicate to them that they are not alone. Your financial support ensures the ongoing ministry of voice of Judah, Israel. Visit vojisrael.org slash Dinesh. That's vojisrael.org slash Dinesh. The uh, Democratic pollster, Doug Schoen, I don't know if you know this guy, Doug Schoen, you might have seen him. He appears periodically on Fox News. He is a conservative Democrat, kind of a rare breed these days. And, um, and, but he's a shrewd analyst of what's happening in the country. And he had an interesting argument the other day that I want to spell out where he says that in the 2024 election, we might, I underline the word might, because nothing is sure in politics, and we are still some distance away from the final voting. But he says it looks like it's shaping up to be like 1980 all over again. Now, I mean, I find this fascinating in part because I came to the country in 1978, uh, by the fall of 1979, I was uh, a freshman at Dartmouth. So 1980 was really my um, the early part of my sophomore year, at least November of 19, 1980. And, um, and when I think about Jimmy Carter, for example, and Biden, there are some parallels, but I also think that Biden is a far more divisive and malevolent figure than Carter. They Maybe they share incompetence, but on the other hand, Biden adds that kind of element of corruption, of villainy that you don't see with Carter. I mean, no one can deny that Carter didn't enrich himself while he was at uh, while he was in public office. He didn't come into public office, whether it was the governorship of Georgia or the presidency, and leave rich. 
Biden, on the other hand, came poor and uh, has become very rich through political office. So that's an important difference. But uh, Doug Schoen's point is, let's look at the electoral similarities. He goes, look, Carter, by the time the election came around, was extremely unpopular. He was extremely unpopular in the last year. His poll ratings were down. And, and, and he was running against a guy, Reagan, that the media told us was unelectable. Well, that's what we hear about Trump. Uh, Biden may be unpopular, but Trump is unelectable. Also, says Doug Schoen, inflation. Inflation was a major problem in the Carter years. Now, inflation then was much higher than it is today. But inflation uh, had sort of been conquered. Inflation had gone down to zero, to 1%, 1.5%. And the surge in inflation has come uh, as a kind of nasty surprise. A part of it was due to COVID, but a lot of it is just due to just promiscuous levels of government spending. And so we have now seen many news reports over the past year or two. Inflation has hit the highest levels that it's been since, well, Jimmy Carter. In foreign policy, the country was a mess. Uh, the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan in 1979. Uh, there was, of course, the Middle East crisis, which is to say the hostage crisis uh, that was produced in Iran by the uh, rise to power of the Khomeini regime. And Carter just had no idea how to deal with any of that. Well, look at the foreign policy disasters uh, in the Biden era, uh, one upon the other, the humiliating retreat from Afghanistan, the continuing kind of mess in Ukraine where we're constantly assured, well, we were told that the Ukraine war would have been won in a few weeks. But then we're told, well, no, it's going to be a, it's going to drag out a little bit longer. We're constantly told, well, Putin is facing all these reversals. Well, if Putin's facing all these reversals, why is Russia in possession of all this Ukraine territory and not the other way around? Um, elections, says Doug Schoen, are decided uh, on kitchen table issues. Um, those are really what motivate the decisive element of the electorate. In other words, the element of the electorate that's not all that political, what do they care about? Well, they care about food prices and gas prices and home prices and mortgage rates. So the kind of they also care, by the way, about uh, some issues that are not economic directly, but have a bearing on economic issues. So the border, uh, crime, these are issues that um, that affect people because they see the countries being overrun. They see that criminals are running amok. They see that the, that things are out of control. And um, and then, says Doug Schoen, by and large, what people do is they, they don't understand the ideological differences between parties, at least the people in the middle don't. And so they just go, who do I think is responsible for these problems? Why am I paying higher prices? Why is crime going up? Well, the answer is... It's generally the bums who are in charge. It's the people who are in office, and so you vote against them. That's exactly what happened in 1980. It was essentially a throw-the-bums-out campaign. Uh, and if you remember the famous slogan of, of Reagan, are you better off than you were four years ago? And that's a question that Trump can ask with particular effect because, of course, he was the guy in charge before. So in a sense, what he's saying is, are you better off than you were when I was in charge? 
And I think the answer to that question is pretty obvious. So despite all the efforts on the part of media types and reporters, well, you know, the economy is doing a little better. It's just that the American people don't really realize that we've got to do better at messaging. And of course, the Biden people are having meetings with the press, the New York Times, the Washington Post, trying to almost help them craft their messaging. It's almost a collusion between the Biden regime and the press uh, to try to do the work of getting the message out. But guess what? Gas prices are what they are. Food prices are what they are. Mortgage prices are what they are. So despite all these efforts to convince you that something is different, I think most people are, say, are going to say, well, I think I'm going to go with my lying eyes. There is no better time than right now to call our friends at PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition to start your journey to a healthier you. As I hear from many of you about how PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition has changed your lives, I know each one of us has our own reasons for starting. I started because I was feeling a little bit sluggish, tired, uh, and so Debbie tried everything else. Nothing would work, so we thought we needed some help. Now, I've heard from countless listeners who did what we did and started the PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition program. We all have different different reasons for doing it. I heard from one listener who went from his yearly physical, he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and the medicine was making him sick. So he goes, hey, let me do PhD instead. He has completely reversed his diagnosis. Debbie talked to a lady who just, like her, could not get the menopause weight to go away. Dr. Ashley and her team helped her lose the weight and keep it off. So there are so many reasons to start, but honestly, I can't think of even one reason not to start, to put it off. So make 2024 your year. Go ahead and call. Here's the number for PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition, 864-644-1900 to get you started. The number again to call, 864-644-1900. You can also go online at myphdweightloss.com. That's myphdweightloss.com. Mike Lindell and his employees at MyPillow want to thank my listeners for your continued support. So thank you. They are having an overstock clearance sale right now for the best prices ever when you use promo code Dinesh and you get free shipping on your entire order. Get 50% off the MyPillow 2.0 and the brand new flannel sheets. We love these sheets, especially when it's this kind of weather that just arrived. They won't last long. Get six-pack towel sets for only $29.98 and take advantage of the free shipping on larger items like mattresses, mattress toppers, 100% made in the USA on sale for as low as $99.99. Everything is on sale from the brand new kitchen towels that have the same technology as the bath towels that actually absorb dog beds, blankets, couch pillows, so much more. To get the best specials ever, go to MyPillow.com, use promo code Dinesh, or you can call 800-876-0227. The number again, 800-876-0227. Make sure to use the promo code. You'll get free shipping on your entire order while supplies last. Guys, I'm happy to welcome to the podcast Gavin Wax. He's a New York-based conservative activist and commentator, executive director of the National Constitutional Law Union. I know him as the president of the uh, New York Young Republican Club, which is the oldest and largest young Republican club in the country. You can follow him on X at Gavin Wax, W-A-X. And he's also co-author of, and we're going to talk a little bit about this, The Emerging Populist Majority. Gavin, welcome. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Uh, it is pretty cold all around the country and extremely cold 
in Iowa. Is this going to have any kind of effect on the Iowa caucus? Is it going to make a difference in terms of the outcome, or is it just a cold day uh, for an election? Well, thank you for having me, Dinesh. Uh, I don't think it's going to have much of an impact. Uh, a lot of the uh, you know surveys and polls we've seen have shown uh, that the Trump base in Iowa, the Trump supporters in Iowa, that they are committed to caucus regardless of the weather. They're going to get out there. Uh, they're a dedicated bunch. They're enthusiastic. They're excited. Uh, they're high intensity voters, if you will. Uh, and I think a lot of the uh, uh, you know harping on the weather and the bemoaning of the weather is coming from uh, the various campaigns and political camps that are uh, coping and they're seething and they're hoping uh, to find an excuse for why they're uh, candidates are going to do so poorly uh, later this evening when the results come in. Ultimately, uh, this has been in the bag for a long time for President Trump. Uh, he's been polling at some of the most, uh, with some of the largest historic leads uh, in polling history in the state by some of the most accurate pollsters. Uh, we're seeing polls come out that show him north of 50%. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's a dominating force in Iowa. The caucuses will be completely uh, won by him. I'm very confident in that. And uh, this will go down as a massive victory uh, in his uh, in his political campaign, and it'll pave the way to uh, open the doors for the general election. I know early on some of the DeSantis people were confidently predicting that they would win Iowa. Uh, they seem to be, you know, backing off from all that. And now for the other candidates, it looks like it's going to be a matter of which of them, def- which of them can beat expectations. None of them are going to come close to Trump, perhaps, but they're kind of running against each other, almost like a, a battle for second and third and fourth place. Uh, I don't know if you are a predictions man. Do, uh, do you have any? Do you want to try to say who do you, who do you think is going to come in second, third, and fourth? Well, listen. I think you're right, Dinesh. Uh, the goalposts have certainly moved uh, rapidly during this primary campaign. Certainly among uh, the DeSantis camp, uh, their standards have gotten lower, lower, and lower. And what they want to count as a so-called win uh, has moved further and further from an actual uh, electoral victory. Now they're arguing, or rather, fighting over scraps. Uh, so to speak. I mean, we've certainly seen uh, a surge from Nikki Haley as much of the establishment and donor class has now rallied to her thinking that she could actually be uh, the real, uh, you know, challenger and opponent to the Trump movement, the ascendant Trump movement within the Republican Party, as you know, Ron DeSantis's stock has fallen with his largely incompetent campaign. We obviously have seen Vivek uh, perform pretty well uh, you know, comparatively, especially since it's been an underfunded campaign, uh, and he's really coming in as an underdog. I think, you know, if I was to, you know, be, uh, be a bit of a betting man, I think it, I wouldn't think it'd be crazy to suggest that Nikki Haley comes in second, Ron DeSantis in third, and, and Vivek with a surprisingly, a uh, higher finish. I think, you know, one thing is definitive though, it's that President Trump is going to win overwhelmingly. He's going to win with an electoral mandate, and he's going to go in, uh, to New Hampshire, a much more competitive state with a lot of momentum on his side. Does that mean that um, when the DeSantis people take stock, and I'm thinking here of the DeSantis campaign, but also the DeSantis donors, these are people who have put a lot of money behind DeSantis. He kind of came into it, what, $200 million plus uh, within, in his war chest. Uh, does that mean that he's going to, I mean, there has been some talk that DeSantis might even call it a day if he disappoints in Iowa just because he put so much into, uh, his expectations initially were so high with Iowa. 
Yeah, it's a it's a funny story. I mean, he spent close to forty million in Iowa, say with Nikki Haley, which is a astronomical number, only to come in third place, a distant third or second place, I may add. This is not a competitive caucus like it was in say twenty sixteen. Um, I just think this just goes to show that he just really wasn't ready for prime time. He wasn't ready for the national stage. Uh, he was elevated or, or rather promoted beyond his competency to be a national contender. Uh, and a lot of these donors, they squandered millions upon millions of dollars on a campaign that just didn't have the stage presence, didn't have the charisma, wasn't articulate, couldn't connect with voters, and really couldn't go toe-to-toe with President Trump. Uh, he peaked very early. Uh, he peaked like a girl in high school somewhere around December uh, of uh, of 2022. And uh, since then, he's been plummeting like a rock. And uh, he's put all his eggs in one basket. You know, you want to diversify your stock portfolio. You also want to diversify uh, your electoral uh, strategy. And he put all of his eggs in the Iowa basket. Uh, he tried to run to Trump's right on that. That only hurt him in New Hampshire. Uh, and if you look at the electoral map and the electoral calendar, you know, after this is New Hampshire, he's really, you know, down bad there. I've seen polls with him as, as low as 5%. He has no appeal uh, in that state. You go into South Carolina, you know, Nikki Haley's home state, she's still going to lose it. Uh, but he'll come in probably a distant third there. And then you look at Nevada, that's going to be a Republican stronghold where Trump, you know, cleans house again. So the map is uh, horrible for him. He's, he has no place to gain momentum. And uh, whether or not he drops out after Iowa, it's going to be a massive embarrassment to him, his consultants uh, and all of his staff. Uh, he's still going to be on the ballot in Florida. So uh, he really set himself up uh, for quite a, uh, a political uh, politically damaging uh, series of events that totally could have been avoided if he uh, put his ego at the door. So do you think that if you were DeSantis, what he should have done is basically say, hey, listen, uh, you know, the the vast majority of the Republican base thinks that Trump won in 2020. And that alone is going to cause a lot of people to think, listen, this is Trump's year. Uh, and um, and so wait it out. And you could then be perhaps the heir apparent in 2028. Was that DeSantis's mistake? Or do you think his mistake was not to run more in the Vivek style, by which I mean to run more a pro-Trump type of alternative and say, in effect, hey, guys, listen, if for some reason Trump is off the ticket, if something happens to Trump, if for whatever reason you were looking for another candidate, that's going to be me, but I'm going to be running in the Trumpian mode. Would DeSantis have been better to run that way? It's a great question, Dinesh. I mean, I'll start with the political timing. I mean, timing is everything in politics. Many people have commented on Chris Chris Christie's trajectory that he should have ran in 2012. That was his moment. He chose not to. He ran in 16. He got destroyed. Uh, and now people are likewise commenting in the reverse on Ron DeSantis that instead of having jumped in, he should have waited. I think there's certainly some truth to that. But I also think at the same time, if we're going to put our alternate history hats on for a second, uh, he still would have faced a lot of the same shortcomings uh, that he as an individual has in terms of his style, his campaigning, uh, you know, all the rest. I think that still would have uh, been exposed in 2028. I think the field would have been much larger. I think it would have been a stronger field in 2028 without Trump in it. So even had he waited, I don't think uh, he necessarily would have been the kingmaker or the heir apparent that many people think uh, he would have been. I think, you know, he has some underlying flaws that through this national campaign and all the attention uh, has begun to be exposed. Now, the second question, which I think is more interesting, uh, had he run a more Trumpian, pro-Trump, uh, MAGA-adjacent, MAGA-friendly kind of campaign in the way that Vivek had been running 
up until very recently, uh, I certainly think this would have helped him in his numbers. I think ultimately his strategy couldn't really pick a lane. Uh, in the beginning, he was sort of doing that. He was kind of toying with it. He was sort of playing footsies. And then he really just came out as an anti-Trumper uh, very aggressively, him and his surrogates online and elsewhere, attacking the president's track record, attacking the president's success, uh, you know, throwing loyalty into the trash, all the rest. I mean, at the end of the day, the slice of the pie and the GOP that's, uh, that are never Trumpers or anti-Trumpers is extremely narrow. It's extremely thin. You're really fighting over 10 to maybe 15%. And that's very, very generous on my part of the pie. And when you had multiple candidates competing for that pie, you're all going to be flailing around in second, third, fourth, fifth place. Now, listen, had he run a more energetic campaign, say like Vivek, I, I think he would have done a little bit better, but at the same time, Vivek's strengths are largely due to Vivek as an individual. Vivek has been charismatic on the campaign. He's been articulate. He's been able to connect with voters. He's been able to run a very frugal uh, campaign kind of by the bootstraps. I'm not a fan of Vivek, and I think he's made some mistakes, and I'm I'm not supporting him in any, any way. But if you're going to compare them both, I don't even think Ron DeSantis would have been capable of running the campaign that Vivek is running. He would have been too in debt, uh, too much... Uh, you know, under the uh, under the guise of his consultants uh, and all their grifting ways, and he would have been shifted in too many different directions, which is exactly what we've seen. So I think ultimately, uh, I don't think Ron DeSantis will ever be president. That's a big, bold prediction I'll made, uh, make on this show, uh, but we'll see how things unfold over the next uh, few weeks. What do you think, Gavin, is the, the cause of the really remarkable tenacity of the Trump support. And by that, I mean, there's going to be, you mentioned the donor class. I'm sure there are donor, big Republican uh, donor types who are saying, well, you know, this is a very risky way to go. Trump is a pretty radioactive figure. And then there is a real possibility that he's going to be facing one, maybe more convictions before the election. It's even possible that he might be incarcerated. So why would Republicans uh, throw their lot in uh, with a guy like Trump who is so dicey in these respects, even if you agree with him on issues, shouldn't Republicans pick a safer, cleaner path, if you will? Uh, I'm, I'm saying this sort of in a devil's advocate mode, but I'd like to hear your thoughts about why you think the Republican base is like hanging in there with Trump. Well, listen, I think uh, contrary to the popular sentiments of the uh, of the pundit class, uh, President Trump is actually the strongest candidate uh, for the Republican Party, and many people continue to underestimate him and misread him and his movement over the last uh, however many years, a uh, decade almost. Uh, President Trump is polling better than he ever has before uh, in the general election, at the national level, at, on the state level, uh, in different demographic divisions, whether it's young voters, whether it's minorities, Hispanics, etc. Uh, he is our best chance to take back the White House uh, in 2024. He has a record to run on. He has a record of success. Uh, and he's one of the few people that really can connect with the voters in a way that most of these, uh, you know, manufactured and robotic, uh, politicos can't. Uh, and I think people have to understand that his movement transcends ideology in a way. It's very tied to him as a personality, as an individual. People relate to him. They feel a sense of loyalty to him. They feel a certain connection to him. Uh, and that's not going to be, you know, you know, you can't just shake that off of them uh, with the typical type of political campaigning and political operations that we've seen from, say, let's let's say Iran DeSantis. Uh, I think he has a very durable movement. I think he has a very stable uh, and uh, strong base of support that is only growing by the day. He's only becoming more vindicated, uh, more of a martyr, if you will. Uh, and the attacks on him are only proving 
uh, his case to the American people uh, better than he can even make it because the system is targeting him and him alone. They're going after him with a certain uh, fero- you know, ferociousness that we haven't ever seen in American politics before. Uh, and it's only giving uh, you know, support uh, to everything he's been saying and everything that his supporters believe already in their hearts that he is uh, the, the, the guy, he's the man that can really change Washington and he's really who we need to put back into office. Uh, so everything is really working in his favor. The Biden administration is flailing. Uh, I don't see any any situation either domestically or or abroad getting better over the next 10 months, whether it's the economy, whether it's, you know, foreign policy, whether it's, uh, you know, just the internal stability of our country and internal cohesion or the institutional corruption. All these things that are eating away at the republic are going to continue for the next 10 months and people are only going to become uh, more and more fond of their uh, of their lives under President Trump and his first administration. So uh, he's in a fantastic position, uh, and I think he's going to win. And I think he's never had a stronger political coalition behind him. I think he's really going to redraw the map once again and really create new coalitions, create a new electoral map that if Republicans are smart, uh, they'll be able to pick up the pieces after he uh, finishes his second term, and they'll be able to move forward with it in a sort of ascendant populist majority. Gavin, you're the co-author of a book, The Emerging Populist Majority. Now, a generation ago, Kevin Phillips wrote a kind of a classic work, The Emerging Republican Majority, I think it was called. And there have been these kind of macro attempts to analyze big things that are happening in the country. For Kevin Phillips, for example, one of the big trends was the fact that the Sun Belt was moving toward the Republican Party, becoming part of this kind of emerging Republican majority coalition. And it seems like Kevin Phillips was right, at least right for about 40 years. Uh, then we've heard starting early in this century the idea that as America becomes more diverse, the country is going to now have a kind of an emerging democratic majority, which is anchored in Hispanics and blacks and sort of feminist women and maybe gays and so on. Uh, and there seemed to have been some truth to that, at least that was to some degree the Obama coalition. Of course, it includes progressive whites uh, who always want to run to the front of this pack. Um, but it seems like you and your co-author are diagnosing something new that's happening that's important now and will be important, let's say, over the next decade or so. Outline that trend. What is this emerging populist majority? Well, you laid it out perfectly, Dinesh. Uh, This follows the tradition of the emerging Republican majority from 1969, which did, as you say, correctly predict a lot of the Republican trends that we saw uh, with the election of Nixon, which the elect with the election of Reagan, and moving into even the early 2000s. Uh, and then at the same time, it also follows from the uh, failed tradition, if you will, of the emerging Democratic majority of 2004, uh, which really crashed and burned because of one figure who we've been talking about uh, for quite some time now, President Donald J-, J. Trump. I mean, the emerging Democrat majority, while some of the underlying demographic trends and predictions were certainly correct, it also hinged on maintaining the old Democrat coalition of labor. I mean, in all of their uh, predictions, they were still maintaining uh, super majorities and massive victories in a place like West Virginia. Now, obviously, knowing what we know today, uh, West Virginia is probably the most Republican state in the country. But obviously, looking back, that wasn't always the case. Uh, and I think what we've really seen over the last few years has been a complete realignment uh, in the American body politic. We've seen the Republican Party Albert reluctantly begin to transform from the party of big business, from the party of the country clubs, and from the party of the suburbs to this sort of reverse FDR coalition, where they're the party of the rurals 
and they're the party of the working class inner city, uh, whether it's white, Hispanic, or otherwise. And this sort of emerging coalition, uh, if it's embraced, if it's sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, focused on and uh, welcomed, could really lead to massive electoral windfalls to the Republican Party. I think the largest problem has been that without President Trump uh, as a populist at the top of the ticket, without President Trump and his sort of force of character, Republicans haven't been able to capitalize on this movement. It was President Trump who broke the blue wall after all, and it's President Trump right now who's polling, you know, as high as eight or nine points ahead in a state like Michigan, which would have been unheard of for a most uh, for most standard Republicans of the Mitt Romney, you know, Bush or McCain mold. Uh, so, but this is something that transcends the United States. This is a movement that's going on across the world. We saw it with Brexit. We've seen it with the rise of populist figures across continental Europe. Uh, we've seen it even in Latin America. I mean, populism can take different forms. There's a more libertarian variety in that of Javier Malay in Argentina. There's obviously more conservative nationalist versions like you see in Italy. Uh, but at the same time, ultimately, it's, it's, it's against the elites and it's against the status quo and it's against all the, this sort of neoliberal, neoconservative world order that's really gutted uh, most, most of the Western world with open borders, with this sort of just economic, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, hyper economic uh, gutting of the country for 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 profits. Uh, it's seen the endless wars. It, it's a it's a it's a movement that runs contrary to all of those different strains and and forces and currents uh, that have really been driving the decline of the United States and the broader West. Uh, and in the United States, uh, we've seen the working class completely realign. We're starting to see younger people realign. We're starting to see some of the racial divisions politically realign where you see a lot of Hispanics moving in our way. Uh, so all these trends can be taken advantage of if we really build a coherent of uh, populist vision for the future uh, that isn't simply, you know, stuck in the sort of textbook uh, definitions of conservatism or these sort of dated modes of uh, of puritan, you know, pure libertarian, uh, you know, neoliberal fantasies about government and the economy. If we're able to be a little bit more pragmatic and we're able to speak to the actual needs and issues of the voters, uh, we can see massive electoral uh, success because of it. And I think we're moving in the right direction. This is happening slowly. Uh, after all, if you look back at history, which the book often does, you know, when the Republican Party was once the Rockefeller Republican Party of the Northeast, the liberal Rockefeller mold. Uh, it took maybe 20, 30, even 40 years to transition from that through the Goldwater uh, movement, through Nixon, ultimately culminating in sort of the more, uh, you know, fusionist, libertarian, conservative mo uh, model of politics of Ronald Reagan. That didn't happen overnight. That happened over the se over a series of decades where Republican Party committees were slowly taken over, where different think tanks were formed, where a movement was slowly built, uh, was slowly being built. And I think a lot of uh, the failings, if you want to call them that, of the first Trump administration largely have to do with how visionary a figure he was, how uh, ahead of the curve he was, that he basically chartered a movement that didn't have the infrastructure behind it because he was so much ahead of the curve. But now going into 2024, he has that movement. He has that infrastructure. He has that sort of intellectual capital uh, that's sort of forming in these different populist circles across the country that were he to take office again, it would be a very different situation. And all of this is part of the broader emerging populist majority, which will continue on a uh, well past President Trump's second term and will continue for the next several decades to come. 
Very interesting stuff, Gavin. And I must say, you know, very hopeful because uh, there's so many bad things happening in the country today. It's uh, it's nice to be able to look ahead and see that there are powerful, enduring trends that are going our way. Guys, I've been talking to Gavin Wax. You can follow him on X at Gavin Wax. Uh, the book, The Emerging Populist Majority. Gavin, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you so much, Dinesh. It hit shelves January 23rd. Perfect. Debbie and I started taking Relief Factor three years ago. What a difference we've seen in our joints. Nothing short of amazing. Aches and pains are totally gone thanks to this 100% drug-free solution called Relief Factor. It's a natural way to fight pain. Relief Factor is a daily supplement. It helps your body fight back against pain. It's 100% drug-free. Relief Factor was developed by doctors searching for a better alternative for pain. Relief Factor uses a unique formula of natural ingredients like turmeric and omega-3s to help reduce or eliminate the everyday aches and pains you're experiencing. Whether it's neck, back, joint, or muscle pain, Relief Factor can help you feel better. Unlike pills that simply mask your pain for a short time, Relief Factor helps support your body's natural response to inflammation. So you feel better all day, every day. See how Relief Factor can help you with this. It's the three-week quick start kit. It's only $19.95, and it comes with Relief Factor's Feel Better or Your Money Back Guarantee. So why not give it a try? Visit relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF. Again, the number 800-4-RELIEF or go to relieffactor.com. When you feel the difference, you know it works. I'm in the chapter of C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, in which he's discussing the peculiar nature and virtues of a friendship. And he says that friendship is the least natural of the loves, which is to say, it's not forced upon us. We don't have to do it. Uh, Eros, it would seem, is necessary for, well, biological reproduction. And um, Storgi is necessary because, well, as Aristotle put it, man is a social animal. So in one degree or another, we're going to find ourselves in society bumping up, if you will, against all kinds of people that we see, many of them again and again. And out of that grows affection or Storgi. But friendship is something that is more selective. To some degree, it's a little more elite, And uh, it is the product, of course, of choice. People choose to be friends and choose to stay friends. Now, friendship, says Lewis, is sometimes confused with general camaraderie. For example, we find ourselves in groups, a hockey team, a classroom at a boys' school. These are a bunch of people, and they play together uh, in recess or uh, even a club where you join uh, a club that is a New York Athletic Club. And true, there is some general common interest. People there play racquetball. Some people play tennis. Other people go there to swim. But says Lewis, this isn't really friendship per se. He says it is the, the soil out of which friendship grows. You're at the New York Athletic Club and you meet a couple of guys and they're just like you and uh, they have a lot in common with you and you the three of you become friends inside the club uh, and then you go uh, meet up there for drinks afterward so that is friendship but but simply belonging to uh, a hunter gatherer group where all the men go out and hunt animals and all the women stay uh, home and um, you know they 
they either knit or sew or, uh, or put the food together on the table. Lewis says that by itself is not is not friendship. True, you're doing things together. True, you're talking about them. True, there's some element of planning and anticipation. But even so, friendship is, in a sense, more more narrowly defined. Friendship arises, he says, out of mere companionship. When two or more of the companions discover they have in common some insight or interest or taste, which the others do not share, and which until that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure. So, friendship is a kind of, of shared vision, uh, according, to, according to Lewis. And, um, and he says that um, uh, friendship is not pursued kind of for itself. Nobody, in a sense, succeeds at friendship by going out searching for friends. The friendship arises accidentally, serendipitously, you are talking to someone and you're like, wait, this guy actually is on the same journey or the same sort of quest that I am, and the friendship arises out of that. And um, so friendship in that sense is friendship typically about something. The something may not be explicitly laid out. You know, you have friends over many years. Debbie has friends that go back to her high school days and... Um, uh, and, but their friendship is is more than the fact that, hey, we went to high school together. How do we know that? Well, because Debbie went to high school with 900 other people. She's not friends with all of them. So the friendship is culled out of that. It's, 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 um, it's a narrowing of that large circle of, of people. And, uh, and Lewis is very uh, eager to emphasize that friendship is, sometimes friendship can move into romantic or erotic love to people who boy and a girl who are just friends uh, eventually fall in love with each other they get married that can happen uh, but the fact that the one kind of then transforms into the other doesn't mean that the two are the same um, uh, Lewis again will say that even in married love there is elements of friendship there's even elements of just storgy affection you're just kind of used to each other and Sometimes you look at an old couple and, you know, there's not a whole lot of erotic love going on between them, perhaps. They're 85 years old. Uh, but on the other hand, there's just a lot of friendship and there's also a lot of affection, affection that just comes from, um, oh, you're making that weird sound again. You know, just that kind of the familiarity breeds a certain kind of closeness and intimacy. So uh, another point that I mentioned the last time was that erotic love is possessive. It is exclusive. It is jealous. It limits itself. Hey, you know, um, it's two people, really. And uh, But uh, friendship isn't like that. And friendship welcomes a third. Two of you, you are on a journey together, but hey, uh, the more the merry. If you can find another guy who's going to join the team, uh, and uh, shares the same interests. No friends are going to say no. You, 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 no admission. Um, our friends. If if two friends are exclusive in that way and shutting other people out, uh, there's some element uh, of their relationship that is not just friendship. Because friendship, says Lewis, is not in that sense is not uh, is not possessive in that way. Then uh, Lewis begins to talk about. Um, about the fact that um, friendship should not be understood as based upon need. 
because no one, in a sense, strictly speaking, needs a friend. Uh, a friend is almost like a gift. It's something like on top of life as as it is defined by necessity. Now, he says it's not to say that friends don't help each other. You might go to a friend and go, hey, listen, I'm in a terrible situation. I want to, I need to make, I need to, I need to borrow money. This is generally, they say, not a good thing for friends to do. But nevertheless, says Lewis, if you do it and you have a true friend, they're obviously going to help you. But it's not important to the friendship. It's not something that friendship is not based upon obligation. It's not based upon contract. Um, it's almost like it's this is a peripheral aspect of the friendship. It uh, it's incidental. And then Lewis makes a remarkable point that I, I found to be true, which is that you can develop a friendship, and the friendship exists over a pretty long period of time, and yet you don't know basic um, family details about your friend. Sometimes you have a friend, and because you've come together, because let's just say, for example, you you know share the love of uh, history or stamp collecting or anything like that, and you're you're immersed in that, uh, and you're not you suddenly uh, realize you don't even you're not even sure you know the guy's wife's name, uh, and you don't realize how many brothers or sisters they have. Uh, in some cases, you don't even know where they live, um, and so there are all these. Uh, details about a friend, how they earn their living, that what their profession is, or what their income is, or what their family history is. And it's not to say you don't find out these things, you do find them out, but you again, they're incidental. It's like, who cares? It could be different, but it wouldn't make any difference to your friendship, because your friendship is really not about that. Uh, and therefore, says Lewis, and this is really where he's kind of going with all this, is that while other types of love are anchored in uh, your physical body, obviously erotic love has a kind of a bodily aspect to it, or anchored in the kind of deep web of connections that you make with people. Think, for example, about Storgi and how it's anchored in family connections. I have, I'm the oldest son in the family, and I relate a certain way to my younger brother, and then the two of us have a sister, and we relate differently to her. So all of this is the kind of complex mechanism of Storgi, but it's all based upon it's all based upon family background. It's based upon the genetic ties that bind people together. Uh, not that Storgi requires genetic ties. You can have affection for a neighbor or even a dog. But nevertheless, says Lewis, Storgi is based upon history. It's based upon the kind of where you are in space and in time. And he says friendship, however, is kind of different. You don't ne- First of all, friendship never involves any duties. Storgi involves duties. You have a kind of duty of cordiality to the people who are around you. You have obligations to your parents, and in some cases <laughs> to your children. Not necessarily willing obligations, but you nevertheless undertake them anyway. But says Lewis, friendship isn't like that. No duties, no obligations. You don't owe your friend anything, and he doesn't owe you anything. So friendship is in that sense unnecessary. It's like philosophy. It's like art. You appreciate it kind of for itself. Um, and says Lewis, in a very Lewisian turn of phrase, Friendship has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which gives value to survival. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.